You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Would you like to take an inside look at the pharmaceutical industry through the lens of a doctor of pharmacy? through the lens of somebody who's actually working within the healthcare system. That's what we're going to be doing today. We've got a special guest who is a doctor of pharmacy and who's had the opportunity to work in tandem with massive organizations like the CDC. And I think this is an important conversation for us to have today and to look into further because as time is going on, more and more details are being revealed about some of the questionable practices that are taking place in our healthcare system. Most folks don't realize, but the United States healthcare industry is a $4 trillion, with the T, $4 trillion a year industry. And a recent analysis reported that about $1 trillion of those dollars are effectively wasted. That's right, a trillion dollars just kind of vanishes due to administrative complexity, due to fraud, Due to unnecessary treatment, the list goes on and on and on. We've got more than enough funding and resources to have a nation of healthy individuals. Yet, ironically, we're actually the sickest nation, not just in the world, but in the history of humanity. I'm going to continue to stress these facts so that we can imprint these on your mental Rolodex. But here in the United States right now, We have nearly 250 million of our citizens are obese or overweight right now at this very moment. We're on a fast track to hit 250 million. 130 million of our citizens have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes right now. Nearly 60% of our citizens have some degree of heart disease already. We are a ticking time bomb. In the ballpark right now, we've got about 50 million of our citizens have an autoimmune condition. ADHD is at epidemic proportions. Depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, the list goes on and on. Liver disease, kidney disease. Somebody stop me, in the words of Jim Carrey. Shout out to the mask. But in all seriousness, a big part of the reason we're in this situation is that we've been masking the symptoms of disease. We've been superficially treating symptoms with our medical system being based around pharmacology and again, the treatment of specific symptoms rather than removing the underlying causes of the diseases that kill millions of our citizens, our family members, our friends each and every year. So it's a big Jim Carrey scenario, big mask scenario happening with our healthcare system. And we know how that movie things Tended to get a little bit out of hand and get crazy. But the great news is we can take the mask off and we can get back to reality. We can get back to sanity. And that's what this episode is all about. And speaking of sanity, it would be a great idea right now to make sure that we're doing things to fortify and support the health of our immune system. One of the things on a lot of people's minds is this overreaction of our inflammatory cytokines or the cytokine storm. This is a response from our immune system when it's working to regulate and response to a pathogen, right? So our immune system is inherently going to create 
inflammation. It's one of the aspects of inflammation. Without inflammation, we would never heal. Inflammation is there as kind of a distress signal for our immune system to come to the site of a wound, an injury, or an infection to help the body to do its magic, to do its incredible work of ridding the body of these things and repairing damaged tissues. But the problem is when this inflammatory response can go too far. What are the things that can help to regulate our inflammatory response? Well, researchers at UCLA conducted a randomized placebo-controlled trial and discovered that turmeric appears to dramatically reduce inflammation, excessive inflammation. Specifically, it's been found to even reduce inflammation of the brain, neuroinflammation, which can cause a whole host of metabolic dysfunction. And also the researchers found, this is a nice little sidebar, they found that the turmeric was also able to improve memory and attention span. Those things could be very helpful in our world today as well. Turmeric is well noted in many clinical trials to have anti-angiogenesis effects, meaning that it's able to cut off the blood supply selectively to cancer cells, which is a really remarkable thing that you don't often see in many foods or concentrates, like what you see in things like curcumin, which is one of the major bioactive components of turmeric. Now, here's the key. We wanna make sure that our turmeric is organic. We also wanna make sure that it has the biopotentiators, the cofactors that increase its assimilation and actually increase its effect in helping to reduce inflammation. And there are many storied things that go along hand in hand with turmeric to do that job. This is why I'm such a huge fan of the gold blend from Organifi. It's based on organic turmeric, but it also has a combination that includes reishi mushroom, which has clinical efficacy in improving our overall sleep time, improving wake after sleep onset, and also improving our non-REM sleep and REM sleep. Really remarkable benefits that are seen with reishi mushroom. Also being an immunomodulator. So reishi helps to increase the activity of the immune system if it's underactive and helps to bring it down and lower excessive immune activity. And this is why, again, it's known as an immunomodulator, which again, it's very rare to see these compounds readily available in the plant kingdom and in this case, the mushroom kingdom. So those are combined. And here's the thing. Right now, as of this recording, limited edition pumpkin spice gold blend is now available. It's for a limited time just to hit those notes of this time of year right now as we're moving into the fall season to add some extra vibes and to add some extra health at a time when we so desperately need it. Pop over there, check them out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. And guess what? You also get 20 percent off 20 percent off their incredible pumpkin spice gold and their original gold formula as well go to o-r-g-a-n-i-f-i.com forward slash model for 20 percent off now let's get to the apple podcast review of the week another five-star review titled hope by andy d underscore okc that's the only word i can think of in describing what john's work means to me hope It's refreshing to know that critical thinking, careful consideration of data and facts, and taking charge of one's own life and health are not dead concepts. It's encouraging to know there are others out there speaking the truth and not afraid to reveal where that journey takes them. 
I'm often teary-eyed at the end of the episodes because I'm reminded it's worth the fight to stay on this path of health and reason. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave that review. That means so much. And listen, if you've yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for The Model Health Show. appreciate it so much. And now let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Dr. Megan Kilcup. And Meg is a doctor of pharmacy and recently an integrative health practitioner that now spends her days empowering people to create true, sustainable, healthy lifestyle practices. Meg has recently transitioned from her role as a doctor of pharmacy, and she's learned so much after working in that industry for many years and seeing the pitfalls, seeing the potential good, and also looking at what can we actually do as a community to get our citizens healthier so that we're not stuck as continued customers in the healthcare system and not actually getting well. So this conversation is incredibly eye-opening and empowering. Let's jump into this interview with Dr. Meg Kilcup. Dr. Meg Kilcup, welcome to the Model Health Show. Thank you. I'm pumped to be here. Thanks awesome. for having me. It's totally my pleasure. So first question, what got you interested in the field? First of all, what got you interested in health? Mm-hmm. And specifically, what got you interested in pharmacology? Mm. Well, you know, I actually, when I look back and you're 18 and you're deciding your plans for your life and you're young and immature. (laughs) Um, I might have done things a little bit differently, but in high school when I was younger, I was really fascinated with the body, with chemistry, with biology. And at the same time, I hated blood and guts. And so like makes me nauseous. So I was just like, you know, I'll go into medicine, maybe pharmacy, something like that. And yeah, the the rest is history. Um, I definitely would have done a different path, but now I'm very thankful for it because sometimes it's the choices that you make that show you something that you would have never known otherwise that right. actually got me interested in health. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I've always been, I would say, a very healthy person, played you know, competitive sports all through my childhood. My husband and I did you know, Iron Man. We were you know, adults, very much into health, but it was my... Um, just being embedded in the healthcare system where you actually understand true health versus what's going on today mm-hmm. in society. So, yeah. yeah. I had no idea that would be the answer. It's just kind of like you want to get into into health, into medicine. Yeah. But just like, let me avoid all the <laughs> yeah. cutting open and all that stuff, but find a way that I could serve. And mm-hmm. so what was your life like day to day, you know, having a doctorate of pharmacy what was your day-to-day life like? And was it what you thought it would be? Well, I honestly don't know what I thought it would be, but I actually wasn't your normal pharmacist. I only worked in a pharmacy for one month of my entire life. And that's when I had to in school. <laughs> and I hated every minute of it. And I felt like I couldn't actually help anybody or talk to anybody. And nobody didn't seem wanted to listen to what I had to say. So um, through my education, I actually learned about how dangerous prescription medications can be and how they are like the fourth leading cause of death just you know death from prescription medications and that was so saddening to me and that after i graduated i was like i want to make a difference there like i want to be somebody who helps people maybe get off their meds and and do it do it right and so i pursued a residency in medication safety and 
from that point on, my day to day was in my first kind of gig in my career, I was just coordinating a lot of processes and projects on reducing medication errors. So that looked like a whole lot of things in a large clinical system, whether it be, you know, reviewing, you know, death from medications or reducing opioids or, you know, developing a safer processes with physicians, educating physicians, things like that. And then you know, we did a study, which was awesome, but really got deep into how patients are just buried in medicines, essentially, mm-hmm. and lost in the healthcare system. And that was kind of my um, really seeing up close how patients are, you know, get put on five meds, which leads to 10 meds, which leads to 15 meds. Then they're hospitalized, put on different meds. And so I was dealing with that mess mm-hmm. in my first part. And then after that, I became a director of safety and quality for the hospital association. And that was more working um, on a macro level with the federal government and with hospital leadership to reduce antibiotic utilization, Um, safer use of antibiotics in the hospitals, reduce med error, reduce death. Um, So my day-to-day there was just working with hospitals across our region and physician presentations, all sorts of things. So, Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> you made the pivot into safety once you found out, hey, there's some potential issues here mm-hmm. with our hyper-focus on pharmaceutical interventions and patients being on a lot of different medications at once. It's polypharmacy mm-hmm. phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. And from that, working in safety, you were working in a little bit more on the education side, mm-hmm. like, you, like you mentioned, yes. with, with educating physicians, for example. Now, being in that structure where pharmaceutical medication and, and really pharmaceutical industry and companies have a major influence on education for physicians as well. So right. what was that like trying to have these conversations, trying to basically combat all the influence from pharmaceutical companies? Right. Yeah, it was kind of twofold in that regard. So you have the influence from pharmaceutical companies, which is so strong because, you know, they fund, you know, the CDC, the AMA, FDA, right? Those various organizations have funding into them. So all the guidelines that come down from the top that land on every physician's desk or computer are essentially funded by pharma. And so to make recommendations that might veer off guidelines based on other evidence that is not presented by pharma or the CDC or you name it, um, is a challenge because physicians have a hard time going off of guidelines. They can even lose their job. So on one hand, we, you know, I, you would see impact made and you would see decisions change and you would see systems, you know, adjust and all that. And there are providers who want to change. Um, but on the other hand, most just aren't willing to sacrifice their job or hosp- hospitals literally have to obey to who funds them and reimburses them, which is the government. So they're not going to necessarily do anything that messes that up or they'll lose their funding. And so after a while, you realize this box that you're in that you can kind of make some dents in it, which was great, but I couldn't you could never really get out of it. So there's that. And then there's also just the simple fact that physicians and any human 
it's hard to change something when you've doing, been doing something for so long or yeah. when you've trusted somebody for so long, um, 20 years, 30 years, or you've just come out of med school and it's like, well, this is what I believe to be true. And so you're also working just with the human race that has a very hard time with change. Yeah. And that's a large component. It actually takes 17 years for a change in the healthcare industry to come to fruition. Mm. So if something, some major announcement came out today, safety concern or whatever, and you know, the federal government said, okay, this is something we have to do about it, starts working on it with healthcare, 17 years later. <laughs> so it's an incredibly clunky and slow process. Wow, that should be pretty sobering, you know, 17 years. That's basically, you know, the time it takes to yeah. get your driver's license oh from somebody being born to get that time for the, for the education to change, really, yeah. you know, and that's what, what it really boils down to is what are students being, mm. yes. and, and not, to, not to use this word lightly, but indoctrinated yes. with a certain way of thinking. And if they're getting educated, and we're taking very smart people, brilliant humans, and teaching them mm -hmm a way of thinking that is dramatically outdated and mm -hmm. oftentimes not effective. Yes. We have a, a we have a absolute army of folks who are doing things that are ineffective. It's a it's it's truly a crisis and I think that indoctrination is a perfect word and I mean that was me that's literally everyone that goes into a medical profession. I mean, after I started peeling back the layers and doing my own research and putting a lot of pieces together and connecting the dots I realized how much you become completely indoctrinated and things that I used to be true, used to believe to be true are completely false. And that could be because of financial bias. It could be because of funding. And it also could be because it takes a couple decades for things to get around for a script to even change. Yeah. You know, the, where we're at with science today, obviously there is the cutting edge science is really centered around circadian medicine, mm -hmm. epigenetics, and mm -hmm. all of these Phenomenal things. Again, yeah. I've known about these things for almost 20 years. Right. And, you know, with circadian med medicine, maybe 10 years, but, you know, epigenetics, almost 20 years. And still, th these are just beginning yes. to be talked about and implemented mm -hmm. in the conventional, like a more, of a more of a mass scale. Yes. And so, again, just what are we, what are we still doing that's out of date and what are we missing out on that can actually be helping folks? I want people to think about that a little bit. And I want to ask you a little bit more about something you said earlier, because it can be easy to glance over. One of the things that was eye-opening for you, which again, you're coming into this wanting to, to help folks mm -hmm. and then coming across some data indicating that pharmaceutical drugs, you know, really your, the thing that you focused on in your education could potentially be the fourth leading cause of death mm -hmm. for citizens in the United States. Yep, it ties with stroke. And I honestly think if you're if the estimates say it's 125,000 a year or x number, it's probably 10 times that because we don't really even have reporting systems for That's the thing. That. And it's so not, it's not accounted this, these for. estimates are honestly so low. I mean, if someone has a stroke, you you know that a stroke, but if someone dies from their prescription meds, it's not necessarily put together. So, yeah, I mean, prescription medications, I always like to preface a lot of what I say with, they have a role, especially yeah. in, I believe, acute care. Um, but the way we use them today to essentially mask what is going on in people's bodies, the symptoms go away, but then they get five new symptoms because the way a drug works is it's just setting off a chemical cascade of reactions. So, you know, when a patient takes a drug for, let's say, blood pressure, yeah, it's going to impact their blood pressure, but it's going to impact 
probably 100 other things in the body. So I don't even think of them as side effects. I think of them as expected effects of, uh, of a chemical that we're putting on our bodies. And so when you do that, and then you have new side effects or expected effects, and then five more drugs, and then pile onto that, you're going to have the body system is so dysregulated and it's not functioning as it's designed and there's drug interactions. And so you can imagine how easy it would be for a person to, to die from that. It's not even functioning like, you know, the neurotransmitters, the hormones, all the things that can't function like they're designed when there's so many other chemicals at play. So yeah, it's tragic. We'll put this up for everybody to see what what you mentioned around 120,000 folks passing away each year, this is properly prescribed medication. Mm -hmm. But then in addition to that, you know, other issues Mm -hmm. with pharmaceutical drugs, the the EJS Center for Ethics at Harvard University revealed that it's about 200,000 folks pass away each year from pharmaceutical medications. And I want to reemphasize this. This isn't something that you go and look up on the CDC site. Like (laughs) here's the list of causes of death in the United States. That's not being that's not being advocated or tracked or being uh, disseminated to the public. Did not see it on a billboard outside. I saw right. a lot of advertisements when I was waiting to come in and it, that was not one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy that that's yeah. even a thing. And so these researchers are literally just digging around. They're, they're working their behinds off mm-hmm. to go and find this data. Yeah. Because, and what they noted in that, in that report was that the FDA only acknowledges a fraction of the cases that actually happened. Right. Yeah, there's not funding, there's not time and personnel and funding to even begin to track the mess. <laughs> Why do you think that that's not being tracked? I mean, it doesn't about? go with the narrative, so there's that. I mean, the CDC, the FDA, the AMA, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they all receive funding from pharma and pharma makes billions of dollars. So to, you know, to kind of advertise against that would maybe cause some wrestling. I mean, I can only postulate, right? But we've become a very pharmaceutical-centric nation. I mean, even the system we have, VAERS, we could have, we could really amp that up. We could really talk about it. We could let physicians know about it, let people know about it, um, but it's not not priority. But that doesn't, that doesn't add to anybody's wallets. It just yeah. helps people be aware of what's going on, so. That's basically, you know, if, we, if, we, if we're wondering why it is the way that it is, it would be biting the hand that feeds you. you right. Know, when we're talking about literally the CDC being funded by pharmaceutical industry, the FDA, to, to the tune, we're talking billions of dollars, right. billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And we've created a system, we've allowed a system to be created that would be very difficult to point out the underlying fallacy of right. the system. Right. But for me, I'm a big proponent, and you know this, of just like, let's look at the results. Right. Let's look at how things have transpired in our society right now. How is it working out? Right. <laughs> People are not doing great, right? I mean, we are sick as we've ever been. We're literally only getting sicker as we are coming up with new novel drugs and new biologics and new advances. I mean, so much of modern medicine is, quote, advancing us, but we as humans as humanity are not advancing. We are, we're degrading, you know, we're so sick. And that is what drives me is I want people to actually heal. I want to ask you about something that I think quite a bit about, and I've, I've talked about a little bit, but having you here is such a great gift because I can ask you about this. 
what does a situation really look like as far as drug approval and drug recall? You know, there are obviously a tremendous amount of drugs that get approval from the FDA, our big stamp of approval of safety. Right. And most folks have no idea that a incredibly high percentage of those drugs get recalled for various safety issues. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So as far as drug approval, so the pharmaceutical companies are the ones that invest all their money into, you know, running the trials, pour in hundreds of millions of dollars just to bring a drug to the FDA to get approved. Then the FDA is relying on the pharmaceutical company to tell them, you know, here's our results of our trials. So it's a red flag. It's like grading your own homework. <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, we spent millions of dollars and here's what we found out. Um, I'm laughing because it's, it's ridiculous if you really think about it. Um, so then the FDA then, you know, puts a stamp of approval, yay or nay. But there's kind of this backdoor thing too where the pharmaceutical company kind of pays them later after a user yeah, fee. That and post I, hoc, know, yeah, yes. post hoc payments. So, you know, the, the money goes in. And so I think that's, it's just a, the whole system is flawed in that you have the pharmaceutical companies running it. It's not like a third party situation where everything's blinded by the company. Um, and then the FDA approves and they actually approve the majority of drugs that are brought to them. And they also receive a lot of funding, of course. Go figure. And as far as the recall, that's actually one of the first things that kind of woke me up. You know, I was, I think, first year pharmacist in my residency, you sign up for all these listservs, get all these emails every day, like every day, emails, drug recall, safety alert, you know, that like every day. And I was just, I realized so quickly that drugs that are approved as quote, safe and, safe and effective, two years later, four years later, six years later, have a deadly effect on people, cancer, you know, maybe it's stomach acid reducers and cancer, or, you know, antidepressants actually can make you suicidal. You know, I mean, these things come out, recall after recall after recall. And the issue is it just takes time. And what I realized is that you have the clinical trials run by the pharmaceutical company that are looking for specific outcomes, right? They're looking for a specific change from the intervention. Like, did the person's mood get better? Or did their reflex improve? But to understand the full-blown picture is not being captured there, right? And so I always say that we, the people, are the clinical trials. So when you take a medication, you are the clinical trial because there's no way it's covered in the clinical trials done by pharma, and those are short anyways. And so it really just takes time. Every drug will ultimately have something, even ones that I learned in school. It's like, oh, Lipitor is so benign. Basically, everyone should be on a statin. You know, that was just preached hardcore. And that was, I was indoctrinated in statins, and many people still are. And now there's plenty of reason to not use that and to understand cholesterol in the first place but yeah it's just it's really a timing issue and there's such a financial bias and the reporting system is flawed which is another element to why it takes 10 years for something to come out you know down the road so yeah that's bananas and speaking of lipitor you know there's a time when you know i was working in my clinical practice and i had people coming in and it was like it was the it was the most widely used drug I had ever seen. You yep. know, all of a sudden people were just on statins, it was getting passed out like candy because it seemed to be so benign. 
But I came across this data, and it's so crazy that I'm even talking about this still to this day, that we saw early on about a 30% increased incidence of somebody developing diabetes once getting on a statin. And I'm just like, there's a there's something here. It was so it was so benign. There was even talk and litigation being pressed through, and this might sound absolutely nuts, but like put, putting statins into the water supply, oh you know, like because of they actually of course, are in the water system, right? Filter it. <laughs> they are right because of us. So, and here's the crazy thing, you know, if you think about it, fluoride is added to the water supply as a treatment, you know, right? And it's kind of like. You don't have informed consent. Like, do I want that treatment? What is the side effect of that treatment? How much should I be consuming of this particular supplement? Yeah. And the same thing with statins. Again, it seems so benign. But if it's superficially lowering your cholesterol, what are the other mechanisms that it's influencing? And you said this earlier, it's influencing like 100 other things at least. Right. And that's literally every medication. So, you know, you could take something like Lipitor, you could take something like NSAIDs, ibuprofen, it's like, oh, this is awesome. I don't feel my pain, but it's actually impacting um, prostaglandin and the COX enzymes, which are protective for our stomach lining. So you're helping pain, but then you're breaking down your gut, which leads to basically infinity issues. So, you know, you could apply that to pretty much every medication, but it's especially frustrating when we've all been indoctrinated in the fact that it's it's benign. It's safe. This is safe. You know, right. pretty much everyone should be taking it. Right. I would think that, I mean, in a logical world, which <laughs> it's a dream. I mean, <laughs> I would think that our FDA, you know, Food and Drug Administration, this regulatory agency to protect United States citizens would at least do some third party testing. So you get right. this you get this data from the pharmaceutical company, you know, right. they've run their particular thing and they told you this is the result. Let's, let me see, let right. me check on that and run the experiment. Because that's one of the things about real experiments is that they should be replicatable. Yes. Yes. Very simple, like why, can't, why can we not do that? Because right. on the back end, we can be literally saving millions of lives. Millions, so, yeah. and per, yeah, not only lives, but you know, there's a lot of just, harm and quality of life that's lost too. Right. Through taking these um, medications, so. That's also what's not talked about because that's that's pretty hard hitting. But like a, yeah. Yeah, we don't really look at all the people injured, you know, Mm -hmm. millions a a year, Mm -hmm. and also how that affects their families, Mm -hmm. how that affects their ability to make income, Mm -hmm. you know, just. Injured and and not healing too, you know, you could, you can cover up a a symptom or you can be like, okay, well, my, my blood pressure is better, but you're actually still very sick. You don't have energy, brain fog, hormone issues, all the things because you didn't actually heal the the problem in the first place. And then you can't actually live your life freely full of energy, right? So that's another part that I'm so glad you brought that up. When we say a figure like, Again, the, EG, the EJS Center for Ethics at Harvard saying 200,000 folks pass away each year from pharmaceutical medications in the United States. We're not actually looking at how many people die as a result of inadequate treatment. Yes. Right? So somebody has heart disease or diabetes, and instead of them actually being helped, let me remove right. the cause. Right. How many millions of lives do we lose because they're not actually being treated? Right. They actually aren't given the tools to actually be their own doctor, right? To learn how to actually 
be their own healer? Who could actually go see someone once every three months and expect that person to, to literally change their life? They can't, right? So, so what happens is they're given medications because that's quick and that's easy. And doctors are even incentivized to get patients better quicker. We can talk about that a little bit. But quick is usually by pharmaceuticals. But patients are not given the, the resources and the tools and the basic foundational concepts like, hey, you can actually do this on your own and you don't need to take the risk of these medications because they could actually lead to your death quicker. Like, let's do this the other way around. Let's, let's you know, maybe take some labs. Let's talk about food. Let's talk about movement. That's just not the paradigm of, of healthcare, unfortunately. So yeah, let's talk about this uh, with our physicians being incentivized. Oh, yeah, it's just in some, it's an interesting component. It's, called, it's like value-based insurance, value-based incentivization for physicians to, the idea of it sounds great. It's like, hey, Joe has diabetes. If you get Joe better in six months, we're going to reward you. We're going to reward your clinic if all of you do this right. More financial reward. The issue is that system just pushes meds. Because most people can't hit the targets that they need to be hit in three months based on lifestyle alone, right? If you take that pill, you could see your blood pressure go down in a week. I mean, I don't know, right? And, but if to get someone to truly change and heal is not med dependent. And so even parts of the healthcare system that at surface level, like, okay, I like that. I like that idea. It still is pharmaceutical centric and not patient centric, which I was in healthcare for 10 years. I ended up at a very macro level, worked with a lot of people in high ups, and it was always said the patient needs to be the center of the care. Hey, it's like there's all these diagrams. You have the patient in the middle of it, and then you have all the things around it, like medications, insurance, pharmacists, physical therapists, all these people, and the patient is in the middle. But that is literally not what happens. It's it feels like pharma is in the middle of it, and we're all just kind of out there on that wheel spinning mm. around. So Wow, yeah. that is a crazy visual. Yes. Um, let's talk about that. Your your work for several years, working essentially with the CDC being uh, an influential factor, and you being you know a point a point of contact and in, in working along with mm -hmm. that entity. You mm -hmm. know, again, the CDC is who everybody's looking to today for our advice about the. The issues going on in our world right now with this particular virus. Um, yep. Let's talk about that aspect of work because you mentioned this is like a macro position yeah. where you can see more aspects of the government and influence mm -hmm. with our healthcare system. Sure. So I worked a lot with CMS, the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services, and they provide a lot of this reimbursement mechanism for hospitals to do what they want them to do. Not all of it is bad, but it's all very orchestrated. And then I also worked with CDC and, you know, I'll just give an example. And this was a very illustrative point to a lot of what I was exposed to. So I was involved with reducing antibiotic use because anti antibiotics, as we know, great when you need it, terrible if you don't. And I was at a conference, an infectious disease conference with tons of physician leaders, the CDC there and their you know, outfit and, you know, federal leaders, local leaders, physician leaders, and also pharma all out in the lobby, with all their tables. Anyway, so I remember during one of the presentations at this conference, the CDC was presenting on um, the flu shot, actually, and they were talking about 
this is the data. This is what we know. But this is what we tell patients. And this is the this is the kind of campaign. So it felt like it was kind of just like brushed under the rug. This is what we know to be true. This is, you know, the standard. This is the new strains, yada, yada, yada. And then here's what we tell patients and here's how we get them to take the shot. You really need, it's, it was all about persuasion, you know, talk about grandma, talk about baby. And mm. it was so fear-based and so not evidence-based. And in, in that moment, I was like, this, this is it loud and clear at a conference and full of all of us there sitting and physicians. And I mean, I don't think anybody had a problem with it um, because most people believe it's the right thing. You know, it's just what you do. Um, I don't think everyone is like me and thinks, hey, like this is a major red flag. Um, but that is where I, I fully realized. And I actually spoke up at that conference over that statement and a few other ones and just pointed out various other pieces of evidence, concerns. And what I found so fascinating is that the CDC and the physician leaders literally couldn't answer me and had no thoughtful, educated response until like, hey, well, hey, that's so true. I've read about that data. Here's the flaw in it. No flaw in it. Just we're not talking about that data. And so I really just learned that well, pharma was there at the conference with the CDC, and it just felt like this gathering of people where the guidelines were predetermined. We weren't talking about evidence. We were just talking about how we were going to pay- get patients to do what we want them to do. And, you know, I think the fact that no one wanted to address any of my concerns, I was even pulled aside after it, like, hey, we're going to talk about that offline, try to set up a meeting with them, never wanted to meet with me. So I think it's just, it's this tunnel where guidelines are determined and when you're funded by (laughs) pharma the guidelines are going to meet those needs and so it kind of goes back to this wasn't patient-centric which is what i raised and so while the cdc there might be some good intent there unfortunately i think they're so they are so deeply indoctrinated with the people creating the medications the biologics that the guidelines are literally just feels like to me to serve them and any piece of evidence that does not align is not invited. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that to me isn't science and that to me isn't medicine. It's not ethical. And I, I mean, I truly think that all of us as individuals and the American people truly deserve something better than that. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. That's really powerful. <laughs> and, you know, even in those moments, you're standing up like Jerry Maguire <laughs> in this scenario, like, who's going with me? It's who's true. going with me? <laughs> And <laughs> even though everybody's like giving you kudos, like, yeah, that's great. Good question. But they're already so concerned about their own thing mm-hmm. and not really hearing and seeing the red yeah. flag. Yeah, definitely no kudos. It was more of like silence. I mean, I don't think people in these positions are ever used to being challenged to, you know, to even consider like another perspective or right. consider. And I think in that moment, in that conference and throughout my career, I came to realize that we're not paying attention to a patient's whole health. Right now we're talking about infectious disease and you're talking about one infectious disease in a field of infectious diseases and infectious diseases are one part of the, of, of, of health and of the earth. Right. And so I was talking about the bigger picture and how, well, what if this is impacting the patient's whole health? You know, there's so much more than just 
this infectious disease. And that's what really drove me actually to create my account um, with the phrase whole health in it, because our bodies are, you know, we're so much more than just a diagnosis or, you know, whatever label we want to put on whether or not how we are interacting with the virus of, you know, modern times. So maybe in 17 years, they're going to make a change based on my comments, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's possible. (laughs) I was trying my best, but I just feel like I'm, it's such a visual representation. Like, I feel like I'm there with you at this conference. I recorded myself. I was like, this is, it was like a defining moment. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing that and Mm -hmm. stepping up and having the audacity to question these things because, you know, throughout history, it's always those people who are, you know, in a sense, non-compliant mm-hmm. and nonconformist to an, an, a system or an industry or way of thinking yeah. that brings us to a place where clearly something is not working, something's right. not aligning. And with it being the case in this convention, again, we're talking about infectious disease. We're looking at the flu right there mm-hmm. in that scenario. And we're looking at how can we get everybody to take this drug? Yes. And negating this fact, and this was from a review of multiple studies. This was published in the American yes. Journal of Infection Control. And the, t- the study was titled, quote, lack of sleep can jeopardize vaccine effectiveness, unquote. And it highlights one of the big components ignored in our healthcare system, which our sleep is such a major modulator and controller of our immune system. Yes. Like it, it might be the most powerful regulative yes. instrument. And so this study, along with several others, suggests that vaccine effectiveness against infectious disease may be impaired in sleep-deprived individuals. And to take this a step further, researchers at University of California, San Francisco, found that sleep-deprived individuals who were sleeping less than six hours per night were over 11 times less likely to be protected by a vaccine than those who got adequate sleep. Again, if we're talking about influenza, for example. Mm -hmm. And no study's perfect, of course, Mm -hmm. but when we have data like this, why at the conference are we not talking about how, hey, we want to coerce everybody into taking this drug. Right. How can we make sure that it's actually more effective? Right. Right. So, yeah, and it's really that there's kind of two layers to that because number one, there's what you're talking about is, is it effective and are there alternative ways to do this without the drug to actually just create a strong terrain through sleep, food, movement, all these things, right? What you talk about all the time. And then the other component is simply omitting the basic fact that the product that they're trying to get everyone to take age six months till you die doesn't prevent transmission. So there's number one, the effectiveness, which is actually incredibly small. Um, I think it reduces symptoms by like a day in like one age group of people, men. Um, But also, the whole campaign was based on, hey, you're doing this to love your, your grandma. You're doing this to protect your baby. And that, that effectiveness was not there, but that was what the entire campaign was on. And so wow. that's what really frustrates me is you're omitting data like you're talking about, other, other ways to, do, to meet the goal of healthy people, because that's the goal, right? Healthy people live in their life. And then also just integrity and honesty and I don't know about you, but when I hear something that is not honest and the, and people being okay with it is just is like driving me. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I definitely feel <laughs> the same resonate. way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's here, here's here's the thing too, and I want to talk more about this. A lot of the folks in that room, or just in the healthcare system, period, get into the field to help people. Yeah. You know, it's a very it's an altruistic 
driving force. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, again, being a very smart person who's driven to serve and to help people, and we're taught a certain way of thinking, suddenly we're swept up into this alternate reality mm-hmm. where we believe that this is the way that we make the patient first, right? The yes. patient is the center of the, of the chart, but in reality, it's not the patient who this is all about, except mm-hmm. in many ways, they're a customer now, right? right? And we're in a system where how can we keep this person and unfortunately, on as many different modalities mm-hmm. of of revenue for us, mm-hmm. you know, we have a system that is based upon and exists. It only exists because we have a, a farming of sick people, essentially. Yes, yes. You know, with if if we have more healthy citizens in the United States, the system would would rapidly fail. Yep. Overnight. Yeah. So, with that said, I want to circle back and ask you about something. I don't want to brush over this. You mentioned antibiotics earlier, mm. and you said essentially antibiotics in the right circumstance, great. Antibiotics used in different or wrong circumstances, not great. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, antibiotics are really great at their job, which is to kill bacteria, right? And so if you are severely, acutely ill with a bacterial infection, this is when antibiotics shine, and we're all thankful for them in that situation, right? But they just, unfortunately, while they're wiping out whatever's causing you to be sick, they're also wiping out your bacteria and your gut, which is literally basically just made up of bacteria. And so when you wipe that out, your gut is our, it's our second brain and it drives basically everything in our body. So nutrient absorption, mood, allergies, energy, I mean, any physiological process, you can probably relate back to how the gut impacts it. And so unfortunately, when you take a course of antibiotics and you wipe out your gut, when you do that chronically, your your gut microbiome becomes so dysbiotic that kind of the bad bacteria take over, even fungi. Then you get leaky gut because that fungi actually poke a hole through your intestinal wall, which is one cell thick. And then you that's when, you know, food particles get in, toxins get in, all the things kind of get into your bloodstream that your gut's supposed to be protecting. And that's when you get major issues. And then on top of that, I would say to the antibiotics, well, there's a, there's a lot of that I could say, but your immune system is housed in your gut. And so you're, it's kind of ironic because you're like killing the bacteria that you want to be gone, but then you're also basically killing your immune system to, for the time being. So it's just an ironic situation that takes place there. And then another layer to antibiotics is there's so misused. We, I think there's 47 million inappropriate antibiotic prescriptions a year. Uh, and I mean, 35,000 people die from drug-resistant infections from these superbugs. And I think it's because there's so much overuse of these antibiotics. And think about the ramifications that come with 47 million inappropriate. And up to 50% of antibiotics are either inappropriate or just incorrect, like wrong drug or wrong dose, but, or just we did not need those at all you know, maybe it's a virus or something like that. So the ramifications on society are just that we're essentially completely damaging our gut, which drives our health. And on top of that, we're creating these terrible resistant superbugs. Like I think by the year 2050, 10 million people are going to die a year from these drug resistant superbugs. Yeah, it's one person every three seconds uh, by the year 2050, because as a society, Drugs are our answer, and we love a quick fix. And when we're sick, we want antibiotics. We want the you know 
whatever, the ZPAC, and people don't want to, to wait. And so because of that, we're just driving the evolution of superbugs. And, you know, bacteria are smart. Viruses are smart. If you put something in their path to uh, conquer, they will mutate and, and conquer it and become more virulent. So that's kind of creepy. <laughs> that's kind of creepy, you know, it and we're, we're assisting in that happening. Yeah, you know, that's the that's the craziest thing about us, about all this. We shouldn't necessarily be worried about a comet or something of that nature, you know, Bruce Willis Armageddon situation, yeah. more so than us creating a scenario where we are not able to exist here mm -hmm. by us tinkering with things. There's even some data on antibiotics being prescribed to patients with COVID-19. Yep. You know, this was going on a lot. It probably mm -hmm. still is in mm -hmm. some scenarios. But again, it's just like here you have this a certain list of symptoms. It appears that here's this antibiotic. Well, and you know what? I think that goes to show too the gut health of Americans. It's so bad. So I think there's this the the microbiome of our gut is impacting how COVID-19 is interplaying with our bodies and causing various symptoms. And so I think when they're giving patients those antibiotics, it is impacting how they're responding to COVID because of the interplay between the bad bacteria that are being housed in these patients' gut and the virus and being host to them. There's very interesting data on it. And so I think to me that was just showing me the very strong influence of the gut biome with COVID-19. And I think it's another example where you can look at a person and say, hey, they're healthy. Why are they having those outcomes? Maybe their gut is, was completely destroyed by antibiotics or by toxins. So their bacteria is off and it's impacting their response to COVID-19. And there's a lot of data on that. It's very, it's very fascinating. Well, this brings us back to this important point, which is, again, looking at the gut, which this is another one of those cutting edge places with science today. Right. And understanding just how much. And the crazy thing is it goes all the way back to Hippocrates. Yes, right yes. he was like all disease begins in the yes, gut yes forget it totally you know Quack. but he was conspiracy <laughs> in our system you know we took the it's the hippocratic oath you know based on mm -hmm. this fella's work you know and his insight mm -hmm. but with that being the case you know in in this instance with with COVID, and i've talked about this i've really done some master classes looking at this bmc medicine we'll put this up for everybody to see articulated that COVID 19 is at least partly an enteric infection mm-hmm where it's integrating with, you know, we've got these ACE2 receptors where, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of bridge where SARS-CoV-2 is able to infect human cells. There's a lot of action with this particular uh, enzyme, that activity in the gut. And so the researchers were looking at how things like proton pump inhibitors were increasing the incidence of severe infections yes. with SARS-CoV-2. Yes. And again, we see this data, it exists mm -hmm. from some of the most prestigious journals, mm -hmm. but unless it's a platform like this, like you're just not hearing about this no. kind of stuff. And it no. goes back to logic and the things we've been talking about, yourself included, mm -hmm. for years now. How can we get people healthier? How can we really right. target and, and help the health of their gut mm -hmm. so they're not as susceptible to infections? Right. Yes, exactly. I remember, I actually remember posting about the PPIs. I was like, this is huge. And, you know, people just don't care. <laughs> but I think it just, it just goes to show you PPIs. I mean, those are one of the most commonly used drugs in Americans um, because we uh, eat terribly as a society. So therefore we have reflux and gut issues and all sorts of stuff, heartburn. So people take those medications all the time and they reduce the stomach acid 
which we need um, in our stomachs for a million reasons. And so unfortunately, it's just like an expected effect. Oh, you're getting sick because your stomach acid is is not doing its job. So yeah, yeah. it's such a backwards way of thinking, yeah. you know, like, and I've got a very specific experience with this. You know, I would mm -hmm. never have heartburn in my in my life growing up, never had it, except mm -hmm. when I ate this one particular thing which was the 7-Eleven nacho with chili and cheese, oh all right? And whenever I would eat it, I would get this really terrible feeling, this, this nausea and heartburn, but I kept going to get it, you totally. know? Like I was just so, I loved it going down, right. you know? Like it was such a great experience, <laughs> which I've talked about this before. I mean, going to 7-Eleven and getting your meat out of a pump. Oh my gosh. It's probably, all oh, right there, right yeah. off the bat, it's probably not a good idea. Maybe. And it wasn't until the end of my foray with this nacho with chili and cheese, you know, basically to have the the, the tortilla chips in a case and then you oh go and gosh. pump your cheese I and can chili picture onto it. it. But towards the end, I got this idea from a friend about go and crack open a bag of Doritos and then pump the chili and cheese into that bag. Yeah. Right? So, oh my gosh, like it got really bad. <laughs> that is next level. Next level wow. heartburn. Yeah. And, and, you know, and what I would do, I would like call my mom, like- She's like, just drink a white soda. You know why you, know? you went back? It's because they put those addictive <laughs> chemicals in it. Yeah. Or your your brain literally, and it happens. It's not just the gnarly 7-Eleven cheese or whatever that is. It's in all the it's in the foods at the store, right? Yeah. So I I mean that's a very poignant, gross example, right? <laughs> but it's that happens all the time to us in a way that's not quite as obvious. It's like, yeah. oh, why do I keep eating this food, you know, and yeah. it's because it's actually not food. It's just chemicals that are training our brain yeah. to be addicted to it. Yeah. And what if I could just take a pill so I don't have that experience, Perfect. even though my body yeah. is setting off the fire alarm, totally. oh like gosh. stop putting this totally, in here. Totally. You know, that's so nuts. Yeah. We're nuts, but it's okay. We're, we're getting there. <laughs> Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. When I was in high school and college, our big sports performance Game day meal was muscacholi. All right, muscacholi consciousness, muscacholi performance, and wondering why we're over on the sidelines, yawning, and you know, waiting for the next play to cycle back in again. Of course, you get hopped up, you get the adrenaline going, you do your performance. But what if there was something better? Not just for game day, but for practice days as well, because how you practice is how you perform. And so if you're dedicated to true sports performance, your nutrition really does matter. And now we have things that have clinical evidence, peer-reviewed controlled trials that show the efficacy of things that have been utilized for centuries. And a study published in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise tested 30 healthy athletes for six weeks to record the effects of cordyceps medicinal mushroom on their performance. The group that added cordyceps to their daily regimen had twice the oxygen uptake of the control group. This oxygen is essential in supplying nutrients to your muscles, preventing fatigue, and preventing the buildup of lactic acid. Another study done by the same group also showed a 9% increase in aerobic activity from utilizing cordyceps. And for myself personally, my pre-workout go-to is Shroom Tech Sport from Onnit. And this is because it was the subject of a double-blind, placebo-controlled 
12-week clinical trial performed by researchers at Florida State University. And they found that utilizing Shroom Tech Sport as a pre-workout showed a direct increase in bench press reps by 12%. They also found an increase in combined bench press and back squat reps by 7% for the supersets and also were found to parallel the earlier study with a cardio performance increase by 8.8%, almost 9% that was seen in the earlier clinical trial. If you're not utilizing Shroom Tech Sport, definitely check it out. Go to onit.com forward slash model. That's O-N-N-I-T.com forward slash model for 10% off. It's a world-class pre-workout and pre-life supplement to use. Onit.com forward slash model. Now back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about what we should be looking at. You know, as far as, you know, you've, you've had a very up close and personal experience with our healthcare system and, and um, our dependence upon pharmaceutical interventions, which again, drugs have their place. And especially as you mentioned for acute situations, I'm a big, big fan of some of the things we're able to do, our emergency mm -hmm. medicine, mm -hmm. but our treatment of chronic illnesses is absolutely horrendous. It's mm -hmm. terrible. Right. And the Journal of the American Medical Association published a, a meta-analysis, this was 2018, and they determined, guess what? Poor diet is the number one cause in their analysis of our epidemics of chronic diseases. Right. Those being heart disease, obesity, diabetes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We know this is right. the thing, but we're not doing anything about it. This is why folks like yourself and your platform and platforms like this are so important because the thing is, I know, and you know this too, people want to feel good. They, they want to be healthy. They do. But they're oftentimes not connected to the right data. So right. let's talk about some of that right data. You know, um, why is our nutrition, we've touched on a little bit, but why is food such a big component of our health and being able to avoid some of the downfalls in the healthcare system? Right. Well, I mean, food is literally feeding, like our body is the result of the food we eat. And so not only just maybe physically what you're looking at or maybe your skin health, right, or weight. I mean, that's like an obvious thing that you can see. But the inner workings of our body, the protein that we eat is a building block of so much of what's going on in our body, right? So I think that, you know, when we're eating food that's not food and it's, you know, these packaged and plants and we put it in our bodies, it's, it's just disrupting the you know, what I say is God's design for our body, the way that everything is flowing. I mean, it's, I don't even think we really fully understand the human body, of course. I mean, it's just an insane cascade of chemical reactions all the time. And so when we eat foods of the earth, meat from animals, it actually is just fueling our body how it was designed. Like I just, on one hand, I love all the data behind it. I love it when you see data on this food helps with this and, you know, beans help with this and potatoes help with this and meat helps with this. But on the other hand, I'm just like, it's actually so basic and primal. <laughs> yes. So sometimes I'm just like, yeah, I love this data. Foods to support your liver, foods to support skin health, foods to support heart, all these things. No, it's actually so, so basic and common sense. And so that's what I always want to encourage people is, I mean, you could research all day long about the clinical benefits of food, real food on losing weight, getting, you know, being actually heart healthy, not from your cereal box on all the things, right? You know, reversing type two diabetes, 
But when we come down to it, we just have to maximize eating real food. And it's simple, but it's a really big step for a lot of people. And so I would just say for anyone listening is you don't have to go from like eating 90% processed food to, you know, 90% real food overnight. That's a pretty big switch if you want to go for it. But take baby steps to be stepping into just eating real food. That's what our bodies run on. I just I love it so much. I get passionate about this because it's, it's so good. It's so common sense. I mean, it goes, stands the test of time and your side effects are only positive. I mean, or, I mean, you could take exercise even. Exercise is just as effective as antidepressants. But, you know, we don't see that clinical data. And to me, that's common sense. And I love that the data supports it. Yeah. But it's like, wow. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. So Yeah, you just said it. it. It is actually in the data affirming that movement, exercise is equal, if not more effective mm -hmm. than some of our best antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Now, why is there not a vested interest in getting folks to move more versus right. getting folks onto very expensive medications? And you might not be personally paying out of pocket for that drug, so you think, right? You know, but this is a big economic drain because that money's coming from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so it might be invisible to you, but mm -hmm. it's still funding this big machine, yeah. you know? And so why on earth would we have somebody to go and move more and reduce their symptoms of depression versus making a little bit of money? You right. know? So this is why folks don't tend to see publications, you know, again, prestigious. No one's funding it. Journals. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's so do it. Let's fund it. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think the reality is, is there will always only be these massive RCTs done by pharma. So anything that's outside of that realm, natural, holistic, even if it's, you know, like a supplement that's natural, you know, people are like, well, there's no evidence. Well, there's not going to be because it's not funded by, you know, one of the richest entities in America, Big right. Pharma. So, Right. You know, the good news, we do have some scientists asking these questions, but like you yes. mentioned, it's, it's, a, it's a funding issue for sure. Mm -hmm. And, but you just said it, here's the big news. This is yes. the big headline. And this is going to sound a little crazy. You said it. <laughs> these are the words. It's basic. This is yes, so basic. Yes. And so just paying attention, asking a simple question, what do my genes expect me to eat? You know, what have humans been eating the longest? Right. Very simple. You just yes. listed some real whole foods. This Chances are this is going to have better outcomes yeah. than the nacho with chili and cheese. Right. right. You know, just very basic. That is yes. so basic. But yet for people, we're at the level below basic mm -hmm. or 10 le levels below basic. Mm -hmm. or we're in Godzilla land yes. here in Middle yeah. Earth, basic, burning. Yeah. burning, and don't even realize how basic this is to find out what is probably going to give you a better health outcome. Right. Yeah. And I always just say, like, you know, you can dig in the data, you can research all day long, you could get into all the amazing biochemistry of real food and movement and sleep. And I love that. But if, if you don't just realize that these foundations, if, you, if we just don't do them, you're not going to feel great. I mean, I love Simple. how it can be both very complex and, you know, interesting, but it's also so simple. I mean, even for myself, if I'm like, man, I'm not feeling so hot. I'll like, am I taking care of myself? Have I been moving my body? I need to go to sleep an hour earlier. Like it's, it's like that for all of us. And we all get the chance to decide every day what we want to do with our body. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, and this is another great 
point of emphasis is that you were doing these things with, you got three boys, three young <laughs> sons. They're like a workout too. <laughs> so finding a way to, you know, feed your family, to create a culture, a, health, a culture of health within your family structure with you and right. your husband. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit and the, the culture you've created. Because when I follow you and check you out, you guys are, are often doing things that are active. You, go, you guys are like hiking together and going on adventures and yeah. of course eating good food along the way. How are you able to get to that place from a place that's, you know, again, very basic where people well, below basic. Mm -hmm. If somebody's wanted to get to that place, you know, mm -hmm. say that again, they've got small kids and they're, mm -hmm. they've got a lot going on in their lives. What are some of the things that they can do to, 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 to create a culture of health in the family? Right. You know, I think in our society today, we love kind of the easy way out. And with kids, it's easy to not get outside, to not go on road trips, to not take a hike. It's easier to put them in front of a show. I mean, right? Uh, I have three boys. They have so much energy. But what, what happens when we actually do that with our kids, not only with them, but model it, is they realize how awesome it is and how fun it is to mountain bike or to go on a hike or to do all the things that we actually love doing. And it takes more work with kids, that's hands down true. But I think in the end, you're kind of cultivating this, you know, a family culture, a family habit of not sitting and screening and, you know, snacking on chemicals. You're out in in the earth, right? You're you're, we, we jump in alpine lakes. We like we do all these things with our kids because it gives us life and we see that it gives them life. And yeah, we're normal people and we have movie nights every now and then we're just like, we're just, we don't only hike all day long, right? But I think it's just taking those baby steps to get your kids out. I mean, I think literally just getting kids outside <laughs> could be like a major step for a family if you're not there yet. Uh, that, that to me is huge. And then when it comes to food, you know, I actually really think that kids... Well, they, they, of course, we're modeling to them, and I think that's huge, what we eat. Um, but they're smart, and they actually know what good food tastes like. And so if we're constantly giving them chemicals, our taste buds are going to be think that that's what tastes good. And if we're giving them food that's real more, I mean, we're not perfect, but I always think like 80-20, 90-10, something like that, then they're actually going to desire it. I mean, I have a, my youngest is sick right now, and every twice a day now, smoothie, he wants a smoothie, is a little immunity boost smoothie that I make him tastes good. It's and it's perfect. And that's what he wants. And that's what he craves. And I just think it's those little baby steps. If you're not there in the, for the full force, just change three things and see how you feel. See how it changes your day. See how it changes your kids. I mean, bless the kids. They're on so much processed food. And it's, I mean, it's a driver of ADHD. It actually, um, I read that the amount of processed foods is changing the mineral absorption and it's tied to autism even. So the red, you know, the red dye, the processed food, it is literally changing our kids, not just their, you know, what their weight or their health in that way, but it's changing their mood and their brain and their entire day. So I'd say if you could just get them outside and more real food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. And unfortunately, even the, even the label of autism can be a little bit controversial or mm -hmm. radioactive mm -hmm. for people to talk about. Mm -hmm. But what I want people to think about is, and this is a fact, look at how the rates of autism have skyrocketed mm -hmm. in the last couple of decades. Yeah, Something happened. 
There's exactly. something going on. Something is wrong here. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of data on what those things likely are. Right. And it's probably not one thing. It's probably a combination of this very abnormal mm -hmm. life and structure and exposures that our children have, you know, that we have. Right. And so, yeah, I want people to think about that a little bit. And also, you know, being that during this time with this, this virus and all the changes that have happened, these societal changes, mm -hmm. and I'm going to talk more about this because I've got several studies now on my desk indicating how the rates of obesity have just jumped up mm -hmm. radically in children specifically. Like, and depression. And when, right. That too. When I, when I break this stuff down and actually show people the numbers, it is shocking mm -hmm. how quickly things have got so much worse. Mm -hmm. And so with that said, and the, the, the paradigm that we're existing in right now, what are some of the things that you feel are not getting enough attention? What are some of the things that you feel we can actually be doing right now to make our citizens more resilient, to protect our children in a real, sustainable, ethical way? Right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like from a media, physician, CDC, healthcare perspective, it's there's the one focus, right? It's like all we can talk about. <laughs> and I think it's just, it's, I mean, we can go there if we want, but it's, it's such a tiny component. And I think to me, it completely misses the mark of the fact that um, besides all the data around this, what, how we treat our bodies is going to impact how we respond when we meet any pathogen, whether it's COVID, influenza, or like the, you know, trillion other viruses out there in the world. So I think just like what we've been talking about today is it's it's the foundations. And so, you know, whether it's you're not eating real food, I mean, that's a perfect opportunity to change what you're eating. I mean, we know that, of course, diabetes and obesity and all that is impacting COVID outcomes. So, I mean, even if COVID's gone in 10 years and your kid's 10 years old, you there's still so much that is positive from making these changes in our kids and in our families. And I mean, for me, when it comes to COVID, it's just like everything else. It's about the foundations. So sleep, like you said, is huge for the immune system. Movement. I mean, I just love movement and sleep. Like you get increases in these, the cells in our immune system that are fighting infections. It's, just, it's amazing to me. So yeah, I think you could, you could take a biologic every six months, but if you're sick as all get out or your gut is messed up or, you know, all the different ways that your body could basically be kind of like dying inside, you're probably not going to fare so well. And so whether or not the population is, is doing what the health experts are saying, we're so sick that it, it doesn't even really, it's not going to make a dent <laughs> because as a nation, we are very sick and we're dealing with a virus that is basically impacts the people in our nation that are, that are that way. And so I would just encourage those people and everyone to, to create a strong terrain, not just because you don't want to get sick with COVID, but because you want to feel well. I mean, I, when I wake up, it's not like I, I don't eat well because I don't want to get sick from COVID. I eat well because I just feel better that way. Like I have more energy. I can have energy for my kids. I can do all the things I want to do with them. I have energy to make them a real food dinner. It's like COVID isn't my driving force. So I, I think I want everyone to realize that, yeah, you're going to see better outcomes with COVID. As a nation, we would, but we'd also just feel better. We wouldn't be depressed. I mean, the, the kids, the AAP just said finally yesterday that 
there's like an emergency crisis now of depression and kids, teenage suicide and girls doubled suicide attempts. So I think, you know, just the, the fear and the isolation and the screens and, you know, basically living life how we should not be living is yeah. having a terrible impact. People are become depressed, then you eat more, then you watch your screen, then you feel lonely. I mean, that is not, not what we're here for. And so if you can get out of that cycle and step into how we're designed to live, that's where you'll thrive. And, and beating COVID would be just another positive. Yeah, absolutely. Meg, this has been so insightful and helpful. And thank you for bringing that up because again, this that's hot off the presses with this being acknowledged, which we could see coming a mile away, right. all the isolation and the the all these mandates, the impact that it's had on our children has now been put into this state of emergency or crisis to address these mental health right. issues. And so, you know, thank you for being the example of what we can be doing. And I encourage people to follow you, of course, on Instagram yes. is, is one of the best places. So can you let everybody know where they can follow you and also just where they can hang out with you and learn more? Sure. Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm just, it's kind of a mouthful, but it's a whole health life. So A and then the word whole health life, a whole health life. And my website's a wholehealthlife.com. So, but yeah, if you find me on Instagram, that's where we can connect. Awesome. A whole health life. And we'll put that for everybody in the show notes, of course. And again, I want to thank you so much for being an advocate for all of us, for doing the hard thing when it wasn't mm -hmm. popular. Thanks. And I just can't wait to connect more to see what you do next. And I'm just grateful for you being on the planet at the same time as me. I love it. Thanks, Sean. Well, it's truly an honor to be here. We've hung out a lot when I'm working out or in my sauna. <laughs> so it's fun to meet you in person. I'm truly honored to be here. Awesome. Honor's all mine. Everybody, Dr. Meg Kilkup. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Definitely share this episode out. And make sure to follow Dr. Meg on Instagram, a whole health life. Tag her, let her know what you thought about this episode, any impact, any clarity that she was able to provide in sharing her voice. Just give her a shout out and let her know how much it means for her to stand up for all of us and to talk about these issues and to stand for real health and wellness. And listen, we're just scratching the surface on what we're going to accomplish. We've got some incredible episodes coming your way very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.